0: By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to focus on the teaching of God's Word, ready to uh, put aside the distractions of the day and all of the things that are going on today, tonight, tomorrow morning, uh, this coming weekend, whatever it is that captures our attention and distracts us from doctrine. And uh, we need to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word tonight, for the fact that your word informs us of how we should think and what we should think, lays out for us the outline of history and how you are in control of all things, and even so you do not violate our volition. Yet, Father, we know that history is under your control and that that history is working its way out to bring maximum glory to yourself. So, Father, now as we Continue our study in Daniel. We pray that you would help us to understand and be challenged and encouraged by the things we study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study in Daniel chapter 2, looking at the, the image, the image that appeared to Nebuchadnezzar in his dream and Daniel's interpretation. So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. Daniel chapter 2. We'll just review briefly the image itself, starting in verse 31. Daniel is relating to the king the content of the dream. Remember, Daniel is giving prophecy, but the purpose of prophecy in Daniel is not simply to let us know about the future. It's not some kind of scheme to satisfy our curiosity about what's going to happen next and try to figure out where we are in the prophetic timeline. The purpose for prophecy is always designed for encouragement in times of struggle because, times of struggle, times of suffering, times of difficulty, because we know that God's in control, that even though circumstances around us may appear to be overwhelming, that the circumstances around us may appear to be insurmountable, that in fact the circumstances that we are faced are are, uh, uh, horrendous, just as the time the Jews were taken out In uh, captivity in 586 B.C., it was a time when they lost everything, the times when their homes were destroyed, that many of their loved ones and friends uh, were killed. It was a time of economic and national disaster as the nation was removed. Many of them were removed to a new place, a new culture, a new home. And this is the framework for much of uh, Jeremiah's prophecy, Ezekiel's prophecy, Daniel's prophecy. Many of the prophecies are in the... Minor prophets. It is to give encouragement that God is in control, God has a plan, and just because things seem to be complete chaos around us, there is a God who keeps everything in order. So that's the thrust. It, 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 therefore, prophecy really relates to issues of the spiritual life. It relates to our understanding of doctrine and relates to, to an application of doctrine that we can relax in the midst of adversity. Now, in Daniel 2, 31, we read, Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar the dream, You, O king, were were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze. its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut, cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, at that point, Daniel, in verse 30, starting in verse 36, is going to interpret the dream. Now that we know the content, he's going to explain the meaning of it. But before we go any further into it, last time we looked at just some overview issues. We have to understand, uh, just stop a minute, and make some simple observations. The image moves down the line from gold to silver, to brass, to iron, and then a mix of iron and clay. The clay here is not soft potter's clay. The clay is the brittle, baked potter's clay. And, of course, pottery does not mix with iron. So you have two different uh, ingredients that are being brought together that don't adhere, don't mix, don't intermingle. And together, it provides an extremely unstable, unstable base. If you notice... The image itself, although it seems like we fades out a little bit, we don't have enough light on it, at the base from the knees down, the reason that gets a little darker from the knees down to the feet is because in the Hebrew the word for feet includes the ankle and the calf. So that when you look at that, the uh, from the knee down through the feet, including the toes, is all a mixture of clay and iron. Let's look at the breakdown observations. First of all, the metals decline in value as they, and they descend the statue. So it goes from more valuable to less valuable. Second, the metals increase in hardness and brittleness as they descend the statue. So that by the time you get to the feet, it's extremely brittle, unstable. And that is the base for the statue. So that means that the statue, which represents the kingdom of man in human history, is built upon a shaky, unstable foundation. Third, the metals go from heavy to light in terms of their specific gravity. So that means that the statue itself is top-heavy and, again, is unstable. Man, by man's efforts, can produce nothing more than instability. Fourth, each kingdom except the last is represented by a homogeneous metal. It's all gold. It's all silver. It's all bronze. It's all iron. And then at the bottom you get this mixture of clay, brittle potter's clay and iron. Now that's important to understand why, and we'll have, we'll have to answer the question later when we get there, why is it that these go from, uh, or, or they portray the kingdom of man deteriorating. That's the, also the picture as it, as it declines in value. The kingdom each metal represents is of less value. It has more in, inherent weaknesses and problems than the kingdom that preceded it. And why is that? There are a lot of suggestions made, but I think the context tells us what the answer is. Fifth, the last kingdom is the mix of metal with pottery, which is not a normal mix. And then finally, point six, the statue itself looks at the kingdom of man from man's perspective in terms of all of its glory, brilliance, power, splendor, strength, and impressiveness. We're impressed by what man does. We're impressed by his culture. We're impressed by military might. We're impressed by all of the beauty, glory, and splendor that was Rome's. We're impressed by the beautiful architecture that survives of the Greeks, their art, their uh, architecture, the sculptures. That impresses us because of what their culture produces in all of its beauty and all of its glory. Some of their ideas, the philosophy of Aristotle, Plato, the the dramas of the Greeks, the dramas of the Romans. You think about uh, Horace and uh, Livy and others. That impresses us, but it doesn't impress God. So this is a picture of the kingdom of man, man's efforts to establish stability on his own apart from God. Now in verse 36, Daniel begins to interpret for us Or for Nebuchadnezzar, the dream. And as we do that, I think it's important to remind ourselves of a basic principle of interpretation. And that is that we're not left with just the the picture of the image to somehow come along on our own and interpret it for what we think the image represents. We're not going to look at the head and say, well, it's a head, there's a nose, there's two eyes, there's two ears. We can... uh, try to figure out what each element portrays. We don't look at the the upper torso of silver and say, "Well, that includes the arms as well." So, what does that represent? The Daniel is going to tell us what elements are worth interpreting. You can push any illustration to an extreme. That's the same thing true for any analogy, any illustration that you use to teach an eternal truth that if you push it too far, it's going to break down because Not every element is meant to illustrate something. So there's an overall flow here. And I emphasized last time that that one of the things we need to look at here is that it is one great statue. It is not breaking it down in terms of individual components. Daniel wants to emphasize, and God wants to emphasize, that this is is all related. There's a flow here. It is one statue representing the kingdom of man. Now, when we get later on, when we come to Daniel chapter 7... There's going to be more emphasis on the details of some of these kingdoms. But that detail is missing from Daniel chapter 2. And it's easy to read Daniel 7 into Daniel 2. It's easy to read later history back into Daniel 2 and say, Oh, well, the uh, the silver chest and arms represents the combination of the Medes and the Persians because you have two Two arms, two kingdoms that came together, and it's easy to make that kind of application. But Daniel doesn't make that application. Daniel does not interpret the mean to do the, the the metal to have that significance, and so we should not interpret it that way. That might be application, but it's not interpretation, and that's where people get into trouble when they start trying to understand the Bible is they want to read something into it rather than taking it out of. That's why we call it ex. Jesus. Exegesis means to draw out from the text what it means, not eisegesis, e-i-s, because eisegesis means to read something into the text. So we need to be uh, very careful how we interpret this. Daniel is going to tell us exactly what is here and what is why it is supposed to be, uh, how it is supposed to be interpreted. Two things that are important for understanding Daniel uh two and Daniel's interpretation. One is the sequence of the metals moving from more valuable to less valuable um, and the quality of the metals. That there is a deterioration in the quality from kingdom to kingdom. And just exactly what that means is is open to a lot of speculation and a lot of debate. But I think we have a clue to it in the text itself, as I have already stated. Okay, let's look at verse 37, Daniel turns to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, You, O king, are the king of kings. Now, as soon as we read that, that phrase, the king of kings, those of you who have been around here for a while or have been a Christian for a long ought to immediately have your ears perk up that the title king of kings is an important title. It is a title reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns at the second coming at the uh, end of the tribulation, he's called the king of kings and lord of lords. So there's something special about this title. It is not simply a, a secular title for this to come from the lips of Daniel in the interpretation of this divinely given dream. says that there's something we ought to pay attention to here, that he is the king of kings. So let's note a couple of things in relationship to this, this particular phrase. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar personally is considered to be the gold kingdom. And that is standard. We often associate a kingdom, a nation, a, an empire with its founder. You can think of the medieval Frankish kingdom established by Charlemagne. And that's who we think of. We hardly ever think of who his successors were. We, we think of the... Um, uh, the United States often is associated with the founding fathers, with George Washington. We have the name Washington everywhere. Every state has a city named after Washington. There's many different buildings things named after Washington. We think of um, Rome. You think of the Roman Republic. You think of Caesar. Caesar was a title from the name Julius Caesar, Gaius Julius Caesar, and his name is stamped on every one of his descendants. He is, there's Caesar Augustus. There's the Antonine Caesars. These, So when we think of Rome, we think of Caesar. So the same thing is true. Nebuchadnezzar is the founder. He is the greatest of all of the Babylonian kings. And so even though there were a number that succeeded him, none achieved the same level of power or brilliance that Nebuchadnezzar achieved. So he is the, the empire personified. You, O king... Are the king of kings now? As Daniel is saying this to Nebuchadnezzar, just imagine what that must have been like. Remember the scene: Nebuchadnezzar is sitting on the high dais there in the throne room of the uh, in the center of Babylon, surrounded by all of his great uh, assistants, all of his cabinet members all of his astrologers Chaldeans the priests all of his advisors many of them had tremendous power in the empire and yet here's this 17 year old kid coming in there who's telling him a dream which none of them could do so now he has their attention and he is explaining what the meaning is and that the meaning of the dream has to do with the history the future history of the Babylonian kingdom so he is impressing Nebuchadnezzar, and he is saying that everything here is yours, and yours is the most valuable kingdom. You are the head of gold. You are, not, you are at the head of the kingdom of man, and you are the most valuable, the most significant of all of the, of the metals. He is the king of kings. Now, there were several rulers that succeeded him. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm getting out of order. He is the King of Kings. Now, the second thing that is important to understand in terms of who the king, this title, King of Kings, is to understand its significance in this passage. He says, You, O King, are the King of Kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Now, what does this mean? He goes on to say in verse 38, "Wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, He has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold." Now, what the the significance of this is that God has given sovereignty over man to Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to see another passage in Jeremiah that emphasizes this, but this is a unique statement. Let's back up and look at 37 again. Look at what he says. The God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. This sounds like the kind of language that is used of the messianic kingdom. It's, it's not, but it sounds that way. He is he's ex- expressing himself in the strongest hyperbole possible to indicate how much Potential God has given to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, never fulfilled that potential. God established it, though. He says, wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, that's any place on the planet, God has given them into your hand. Now, Nebuchadnezzar did not extend his empire as far as God would have allowed him. But the point we're going to see from Jeremiah is that God, if Nebuchadnezzar had had faith rest drill at this point and really trusted God, Nebuchadnezzar would have gone, would have gone out and he could have potentially conquered the entire world. God has given him that level of dominion, but he never, he never pushed it that far. Now, the other thing that this tells us, if we're thinking in terms of biblical history, is that something profound is taking place here. To whom has God promised that he will be working throughout human history? The Jews in the Abrahamic covenant, which was established in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham, because all of the Gentiles had failed, stick it into its historical perspective, all the Gentile kingdoms had failed, and what was the symbol of their failure? The symbol of their failure was they established a city they called Babel, and this is who? This is the king of Babylon. They had established the city of Babel. This was about in the middle to late, or late third century BC, many, many, almost a thousand, more than a thousand years before this. They had established the kingdom of Babel and built the Tower of Babel. Well, most people pronounce it Babel, the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, they were establishing their kingdom over against God. It was a sign of man versus God and so, and because they had rebelled against God and they, mankind had refused to scatter upon the face of the earth and establish himself and fulfill the divine mandate God said I'm no, no longer going to work through the Gentiles as a whole I'm going to call out one individual and I'm going to work through him and that's Abraham so he calls out Abraham and it's through Abraham that God promises to bless all the nations throughout all of, all of the world and now Israel has failed northern kingdom went out under divine discipline in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom goes out under discipline in 586 B.C. And now what's left? What's going to fill that vacuum? God is going to have a power shift from Israel and begin to work through the Gentiles. And that Israel is going to be reduced to sort of a second-class status for centuries. It still is in existence. And that God is going to primarily work or give that political dominion over to the Gentiles. Now, let's go back and understand the significance of the Davidic monarchy. Remember, you have the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant promised three things to Israel. They would have a specific piece of real estate that would be theirs, that would extend from the river of of Egypt to the euphrates river and back to the mediterranean from syria down to egypt all of that territory a territory they never fully controlled was to be theirs god promised them that but because they never did what god said because they never fulfilled what god had uh, had told them to do because they were disobedient they never they never achieved complete dominion over that now hold your place in daniel And let's turn back and look at just one passage to pull this together. In Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight, the parallel chapter is is, uh, Leviticus chapter twenty-six, verses one through thirteen. But here I just want to look for a summary background of Deuteronomy twenty-eight. Now Deuteronomy covers, or Deuteronomy was basically a sermon that was taught to the Jews just before they went into the land. We studied it in in survey fashion. The Deuteronomy is based on what was called at that time the suzerain vassal treaty form. That was a technical type of, of contract or covenant between an overlord or suzerain, a great king, and his people. And as part of that document, typical covenant for the ancient world at that time, it would conclude with a blessing section and a cursing section. If you do what you're supposed to do, this is what I, the great king, will do for you. If you don't do what I tell you to do, then this is how you will be cursed. Now, I want you to look at the blessing section in Deuteronomy 28. This is profound. This is, I've never heard anybody really push this before, before. But listen to what God promised. He says, Now it shall be if you, you Jews will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations. Now, we've studied this. When we studied prophecy, and we were going through dispensations and covenants, and we came to the millennium, we saw that this is the same thing that will ultimately be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. But this isn't a millennial promise. It will be fulfilled then. But God is saying, right now, you Jews, as you stand outside the land of Israel on the plains of Moab, ready to invade the land of the Canaanites that I am giving to you, if you go in there and you do everything I tell you to do, and you're diligent to do everything I tell you to do, then you will be the premier nation on all the earth right now, Old Testament times. I'm not talking about first coming. I'm not talking about the millennial kingdom. God would have done it for Israel then, but they failed. Verse 2 says, And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you will obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. There will be incredible prosperity throughout the land. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body. That's going to include health for everyone in the nation. And the produce of your ground. No land would be as productive as their land. And the offspring of your beasts, there would be health among all of their, their animals, the cattle and the and the sheep and the goats the increase of your herd and the young of your flock blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl blessed shall you be when you come in blessed shall you be when you go out the Lord will cause your enemies to rise up against you to be defeated before you and in Leviticus it indicates that no matter how large the army would be that would come against them if, even if they were uh, overwhelmed by 10, 20, 30, 50 fold they would still defeat them God would bless them and they would have dominion over all the earth. This is Old Testament stuff. This is not waiting until the millennial kingdom. Now, ultimately, that's when it's going to be fulfilled. But the potential was there uh, in the Old Testament. Just as the potential was there, when Jesus Christ came at the first advent, the message of John the Baptist was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, they didn't repent, so the kingdom was postponed. But it was a real legitimate offer. The potential was that if the Jews had accepted Jesus Christ as Messiah at the first coming, then he he still would have had to die, sin still would have been paid for, but the millennial kingdom would have come in right then. They could have had it in the Old Testament. Now, the Abrahamic covenant promised three things. It promised a land. It promised a seed, which was fulfilled in the Davidic covenant. That it was going to come through, through David and the Davidic line and a promised blessing, that it was through Israel that all the nations would be blessed. So Israel has a twofold function. They are a covenant nation because God established them as a nation on the basis of a covenant. Now that is crucial to understand. That, make, that sets Israel apart from all other nations. In Exodus chapter 19, God says, I have called you to be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. No other nation is called to be a kingdom of priests. No other nation has a covenant with God. That sets Israel apart from every other nation in human history. And they would be led by the descendants of David according to the Davidic covenant. Now, the Davidic covenant has a commentary on it in the Old Testament. There's an expansion of the Davidic covenant. It's given originally by God to David in Second Samuel chapter 7. But it's expanded in Psalm eighty nine. So I want you to turn from Deuteronomy to Psalms. Remember Psalms is located in the middle of your Bible, unless you have one of those new study Bibles that's got three inches of material at the end. But if you don't have that, Psalms is usually located just by holding your Bible up and splitting it down the middle. Turn to Psalm chapter eighty nine. Psalms eighty nine and I want to look at the context. I want to focus particularly on verse twenty-six and twenty-seven. But it's meaningless without context. Remember, a text without a context is usually a con job. Psalm 89. It's talking about David and how God is going to bless David and his descendants. Let's begin about verse 19. The psalmist, we don't know who wrote the psalm, is addressing God and says, Once thou didst speak in vision to thy godly ones, and didst say, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established, my arm also will strengthen him. So it's talking about divine blessing to empower David as a king to establish a nation. The enemy will not deceive him. Verse 22 is going to promise military blessing and success. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. Divine protection for him and for the nation. And then supernatural ability and victory. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. And my faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn, that horn is a metaphor for power, his position, his prestige, will be exalted. Now notice what it said in verse 25, you Navy guys. I shall also set his hand on the sea. See, he's going to have success in naval warfare. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Now we know that Solomon had a navy, and Solomon extended uh, the control of Israel over the seas, but this is a promise to David that was not fulfilled by David. And he goes on to say in verse twenty six, let me get past my image here psalm eighty nine twenty six he will cry to me, thou art my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, indicating the spiritual Maturity of David. Verse 27, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The highest of the kings of the earth, the king of kings. God is saying in this section, in Psalm 89, that the destiny for David is to be the king of kings. Not the greater son of David, who is Jesus Christ. He will be the king of kings. But that God has promised through the Davidic dynasty that God is going to raise up this dynasty and, and at some point it is going to be the greatest dynasty and power on earth and specifically will be led by David. Now we saw and I don't have time to go through it when we studied Ezekiel and the millennial kingdom and the Ezekiel promises that there are two key figures in Israel's millennial kingdom. One is called the prince and that prince is David. To, he is called a prince in his relationship to jesus christ will be ruling and reigning over israel he's also called the king in relationship to his role over the people so david will be resurrected and will rule over israel in the millennial kingdom and this is when this is fulfilled so god has made a promise to israel in the old testament that he would make them the greatest of all the nations and all the nations would turn to israel but they failed and when they failed and the northern kingdom was taken out under divine discipline in 722 and the southern kingdom in 586 BC, then they, that promise was put in abeyance and has not yet been fulfilled. But the simple point I want to make here is that there was a potential for Israel to overpower all nations in the Old Testament and to rise to the highest position of power and prestige and dominance in the ancient world but they failed because of their idolatry and their disobedience to God. And so when they failed, when they lost that that the promise included two things. It was a political and military power first of all, and secondly, spiritual power. Those two things are linked together in Israel. Political and military power and spiritual power. But what happened when Israel was taken out under divine discipline? They lose that. The potential is lost. It's put off until the uh, second coming of Jesus Christ. And it is the, the, in their place that God raises up Gentile nations who then become over, pol- the political overlords over Jerusalem. And this begins something, a time in history called the Times of the Gentiles. And there are two important phrases we have to understand in relationship to God's timetable and prophecy. The first is the time of the Gentiles, and the second is the the fullness of the Gentiles, and we'll cover these under the doctrine of the times of the Gentiles. Doctrine of the times of the Gentiles is covered in Luke chapter 21, 20 to 28. Well, I've got things out of order. It's been a rough couple of weeks technologically. Okay, let's look at point number one. Point number one under the doctrine of the times of the Gentiles. It's based on the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic kings were to be the kings of kings. The Davidic kings were to, had the potential to be the kings of kings, Psalm 89:26 and 27. This potential was lost in the ancient world in 605 BC at the time that the Jews were first defeated by Nebuchadnezzar and the first group of captives were taken out and deported. To Babylon. Daniel was one of that group. All during the period of the monarchy in Israel, the Davidic kings were divinely vested with this potential for world supremacy. However, the fact that they violated God's law and did not obey Him, they lost that potential. And it will only be restored to regenerate Israel in the millennium. It's not ended for good because these were unconditional promises God made at the Abrahamic kingdom. The second point. In 605 BC, potential world supremacy was turned over to the Gentiles. Potential world supremacy was turned over to the Gentiles. And this time period of Gentile supremacy is referred to as the times of the Gentiles in Luke 21. 24. So now turn with me into the New Testament, to the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, then Luke, Luke 21, 24. If you hit John, you've gone too far. Luke 21, 24. Now the context here is that Jesus is describing the second coming of Christ, his second coming when he returns. Let's look at an overview of the chapter, Luke 21, 24. 20 to 28, starting in verses 21, 20 to 24, we have the warning that days of vengeance are coming. Verse 20 reads, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart, and let not those who are in the country enter the city. You compare this with Matthew uh, chapter 24, you realize that this takes place at the towards the end of the tribulation. That at that time, Jerusalem, according to Zechariah 12, 1 and 2, is going to be attacked by four armies, the king of the north, the king of the south, and the antichrist, the king of the west, and then the king of the east with an army of 200 million is going to be coming across the Euphrates. And they will all converge on Israel at a place called Har Megiddo in the, in the Hebrew are, and it's come down in English as Armageddon. It's the plain of Esdralon, north of Israel. But it's a, as we've studied in the past, it's an eight-stage battle, and it culminates at the Valley of Jehoshaphat right outside of Jerusalem. And so what Jesus is warning them is that when they see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then that is the time of the end, and they need to evacuate and head for the hills. And get out of Jerusalem just as fast as possible. These are then called days of vengeance in verse 22. In order that all things, that is all prophecy, all things which are written might be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Now, it just occurred to me when I read that verse that there is some confusion going on today that filters to me through various people who are listening to tapes and around the country. and One area of confusion is a result of some things that are said in the left-behind novel series written by Tim LaHaye. Now, there are many good things in that, and remember, it's, it's fiction, and, but nevertheless, it reflects his theological understanding. And he has a rather unusual understanding about what will take place at the rapture. A lot of people wonder, well, if I'm raptured, what about my kids if they haven't reached the age of accountability? And LaHaye thinks that if your children haven't reached the age of accountability, then all children all over the world who haven't reached the age of accountability will be raptured. Now, there's a problem with that. See, if you die before you, if a child dies before reaching the age of accountability, and the age of accountability is the age at which they reach God consciousness where they can understand that God exists, where they realize that there's something greater, that they, everything just isn't just here, that, that there must be a creator. They recognize that there is a creator, Romans 1, 18 through 20. And we studied uh, Ecclesiastes 3 last week, which says that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. Psalm 119, the heavens declare the glory, uh, glory of God So all those passages indicate that every single person at some point reaches a stage of God consciousness. Some may be younger, some older, but at that age where they reach a knowledge that God exists and they're able to understand and respond to the gospel, then they're accountable. They make a decision either to know God or not to know God. If they're positive at God consciousness, then God will bring them the gospel. We see that that's true with Nebuchadnezzar in this story, and God is using all of this to bring Nebuchadnezzar to not only God consciousness, but to uh, an understanding of the gospel and the need to respond in faith to the gospel. Now, the problem with Lahaye's contention is that if a three-year-old who hasn't reached the age of accountability at the time of the rapture uh, is not taken at the rapture, they don't lose the opportunity to respond. See, if you die at the age of three, you're never going to get that chance again. Hebrews chapter uh, 10 says that uh, it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. After you die, there's no second chances. But see, they don't die at the rapture. That three-year-old is going to live and be ten years of age by the end of the tribulation if that ten-year-old survives. And during that time, they can make a decision for or against Christ. So those children will live. to me, the more interesting question is what's going to happen to the infants who are on the earth at the time of the second coming. Are they going to automatically be saved and go into the millennial kingdom? Well, the Bible doesn't answer all of those questions. Too often we have illegitimate speculation, and what we need to realize is God is just, he's absolutely righteous, and whatever he does will be fair and just. He hasn't specifically answered those kinds of questions. But there is a warning here to mothers who are with child and to those who have babies that this is a horrendous time of suffering. Woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babies. There's no indication that, that just because there are babies and infants that somehow they're, they're going to be exempted from the horrors of the tribulation. So I do not agree at all. I think, think that Lahaye is on extremely shaky theological ground with that contention of his, and, and there's no biblical support for it whatsoever. In fact, it violates a number of principles. So here in 23, there's, there's a warning to those who are there, and then in verse 24, "...and they will fall by the edge of the sword." and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Now, this section up to now is a a type of what's going to happen at the tribulation, which is what I've been talking about. But the specific application of 20 to 24 is 70 A.D., when Israel went out under divine discipline in 70 A.D. And it's talking about that at that time, when all this calamity came, that the children, the... Babies, those who were nursing were going to uh, suffer all the calamity, all the distress that would come upon them, just as those in the tribulation will at that time. They are to, to flee. This is used as also as a type of what happens at the end of the tribulation. So it says, when the Romans come, this is talking specifically about 70 A.D., they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot, by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And that's where we get the phrase times of the Gentiles. So Luke 21.24 tells us that there will be Gentile domination of Jerusalem. So the question then comes, what is the beginning and what is the end of the times of the Gentiles? When did the times of the Gentiles begin? There are basically two two positions. One is that the times of the Gentiles begins with Daniel 2, with the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem in 605. The other view is it didn't begin until 70 AD. Now, before we get into the details on that, We have to understand that there are three distinct interpretations of the times of the Gentiles. Now, three or four weeks ago, we went through and did a little introduction to prophecy, and we looked at postmillennialism, amillennialism, and premillennialism. Just to review, postmillennialism means that Jesus Christ returns at the end of the millennium. The church age is gradually going to get to a point where the majority of people on the earth are believers. It's going to be a time of unprecedented blessing. And it is at the end of that period that Christ will return. We do not believe that's what the Bible teaches. The amillennial position teaches that the current age is the time of the kingdom spiritually. And that Jesus is presently in heaven on a spiritualized Davidic throne. And that history will end when Jesus Christ returns and then we'll go into the eternal state. That's the amillennial view. Now, post-millennialists interpret the times of the Gentiles as meaning Gentile possession of the spiritual promises of Israel. The post-millennialists would say that, that what this means is Jerusalem represents the uh, Jewish promises. See, they get into allegory here, that they spiritualize it. Jerusalem isn't physical Jerusalem, it just it represents all of, all of Israel And that it will be trampled down, and they will no longer have the possession of the promises of the Old Testament, and all those promises will be given to the Gentiles. And Israel will never receive them again. The amillennialists add something to that. It's very similar to the post-mill view, except they introduce the idea of judgment, that there will be... Judgment, the, time, the fulfillment of the times of the, judge, uh, of the Gentiles indicates that Gentiles will be judged in that period of time. So if we were to put, diagram this, the Amil view, the Postmill view says, here we are, the Jerusalem equals the promises. They've been nullified to Israel. And then they've been given to the Gentiles in this age and everything goes from is optimistic and goes to a greater and greater period until Jesus Christ returns at the second coming now the Amil view is similar but the Amil view introduces the idea that there will be a judgment on the Gentiles at the end when the fullness of the Gentiles comes about the premillennial view is different The premillennial view looks at it this way. That from, and I believe the times of the Gentiles began in 605 B.C., and we'll look at why in just a minute. That in 605 B.C., God had taken Israel out under the fifth. So we'll have a line here. Here's the Gentiles up here and Jews down here. The Jews are out under the fifth cycle of discipline. The Gentiles are given political power. And it is through the Gentiles that there will be, through the Gentile empires, that there will be political stability on the earth. The Jews are out under the fifth cycle; they do return in 535 BC and have the have a kingdom, but they're always under the overlordship. There's uh, of Gentiles. There's there are. Uh, they're under the control of the Syrians. They're under the control of the Romans. Uh, later, they're under the control of of uh, different uh, Arab tribes after 70 A.D. But there is, they still are the source of spiritual blessing because that's the basis in the Abrahamic covenant. The times of the Gentile goes. The times of the Gentiles go until. Jesus Christ comes uh, the times of the Gentiles go until the second coming we'll look at the term fullness of the Gentiles in a minute fullness of the Gentiles ends at the rapture because that's when the church is evacuated to heaven and then there's a return to a Jewish emphasis right after the rapture but the times of the Gentiles goes from 605 B.C. to the end of the tribulation now let's look at some think through what this means think through a couple of implications of this first of all we must distinguish between client nations and covenant nations this is not always done a client the term client nation itself is not a biblical term it is used to it comes out of modern political parlance, really, that just as the, as the Soviet Empire expanded into satellite nations in the Eastern Europe, those were client nations. The same thing would be true with the United States back during the time of the Cold War, that there were certain nations that were our allies that, support, that we supported and that ex- expanded and implemented our policies. So the term client nation was adopted because God is using in human history not the nation he has chosen and called out the Jews, but sort of the second best. He's operating through these uh, second-tier Gentile nations in order to bring about his plans and purposes for mankind. They, he doesn't have a co- covenant with them. There's no covenant relationship between God and the the Roman Empire, between God and the Frankish Empire, between God and the Holy Roman Empire, God and the United States of America, or God and the British. There's no, um, no covenant there. But God is using those nations to protect Israel and to provide a base for missionary activity. For example, you go back to Ireland, in about the 5th, 6th century A.D., and you discover that there was a tremendous uh, revival that took place there. There were hundreds of, not thousands, of Irish that trusted the Lord under the ministry of St. Patrick. And Patrick really wasn't Irish, he was a Celt. I mean, he, he was a Briton. And he was captured as a young boy and taken as a slave to Ireland. And then when he finally escaped, he went back home. He had training, and he had a desire to take the gospel to the Irish. Well, in a couple of generations from Patrick, there were believers in the north of Ireland who then established a monastery on the island of Iona, out between Ireland and Scotland. And the head of the monastery was a monk by the name of Columba. And Columba taught the gospel. They copied the scriptures. They translated the scriptures to put it into the hands of of ordinary people. And they sent missionaries out uh, into Scotland, back to Ireland, down into England. They sent missionaries to the Scandinavian countries. And the gospel went all over northern England from that one little seminary base at that monastery on the island of Iona. That was a, that's the function of a client nation, that, that there's a nation that's going to have believers there that are going to send out missionaries and be a source of uh, continuing the blessing of the gospel but that's grounded ultimately in the Abrahamic covenant and in Israel. So we have to distinguish between client nations and covenant nations and that Israel is a covenant nation and the gentile nations are client nations. If you don't do that and Israel is not held as a as something distinct but if you think that she's a client nation just like all the other Gentile client nations, then you're forced to go into a 70 A.D. starting point for the times of the Gentiles because Israel has to go out completely before you can have the times of the Gentiles and there can be a shift because you only have one client nation operating at one time in history. But if Israel is distinct, and she is, then you can have a client nation existing at the same time as a covenant nation. And Israel is is existing as a covenant nation in the land, but but not all of them are in the land. Remember, the northern kingdom was taken out in captivity. So you have the Hasmonean dynasty taking place during the uh, 2nd century B.C., and you have Israel in the land Uh, during the first century under Roman uh, dominion, and then you have a return of Jews to Israel at the present time. But Israel, throughout all of these uh, various manifestations, where there are Jews in the land and where there is an autonomous nation in the land, they are still there at at the blessing of Gentile nations. If the United States had not supported Israel... In 1948, Israel would have been wiped out by the Arabs. If the United States were not continuing its support of Israel, Israel would be overrun by the Arabs in a flash. But because there are nations, Gentile nations, supporting Israel and protecting Israel, there is a nation in the land, but it is still under the overlordship of Gentile client nations. So Israel went out under divine discipline in 605, and that started the time of Gentile dominance of Jerusalem in 605. This is further emphasized in verse 24 by the statement, they will fall by the edge of the sword, will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. This is a um, present participle of the verb pateo, which means to walk on, to trample, to conquer, to control. And it is used metaphorically of the idea of control. And so Israel has generally been under the control, under the dominance of Gentile powers, and exists, if there's been any peace there, any independence, it's been under the overlordship of a Gentile power ever since. And it will not end until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's go back and pick up the significance of Nebuchadnezzar and looking at Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 5 through 8. Jeremiah 27, 5 through 8. Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, you, O king, are the head of gold. And look at what God promised, at, promised Nebuchadnezzar in Jeremiah 27, 5 through 8. God says, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Dominion and power belongs to God. Nations don't just rise up by chance. God is the one who controls history. Verse 6, And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. and And remember, Nebuchadnezzar is not saved at this point. But God, he is God's servant in that he is fulfilling God's plan and purposes for human history. I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him, and all the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him a servant. And it will be that the nation or the kingdom which will not serve him, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have destroyed it by his hand. That's carte blanche. God, has, God was going to give complete power to Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen it here. We've seen it back in Daniel. If Nebuchadnezzar had pushed and wanted to expand his kingdom... Nothing was going to stand in his way. God would have given him everything. He did not. Few of us live up to the potential or seize the potential that God has given us. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar was no different. So Nebuchadnezzar had a tremendous position in history. And this this marks a shift. In verse uh, 38, that marks a shift in God's plan in the ancient world to be, to shift the political dominance away from Babel, I mean away from Israel now another thing as we conclude that we ought to note is that this takes place this prophecy takes place in about 603 BC what's fascinating is that at that time in human history tremendous changes took place throughout the earth in the next 100 years Many of the major religious systems that were on the earth today were developed. Buddhism was developed. Zoroastrianism was developed. Um, Confucianism was developed. All at this same time, it's within 100 years that you have the early Greek philosophers and the foundation for all of the Greek philosophical systems, uh, the pre-Socratics, Socrates, Aristotle, uh, Plato, all within 150 years or so of this decree, there is a major shift throughout the Gentile powers at this time, because God is going to re- is going to establish the Gentile powers as the power base that is going to override Jerusalem. The political power, philosophical power, goes to the Gentiles, and the Jews are going to be uh, limited in their uh, expansion in the next. Uh, for the next several millennia. We'll come back and look at the second kingdom next time as we continue our study on God's plan for human history. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word tonight, to focus on these things, to understand that you are in control of human history and you are bringing about uh, your plans and your purposes. And, Father, we know that you will be glorified uh, through the end of time. We pray that if there's anyone here this evening unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this time, this opportunity, to make that sure and certain. All that is necessary is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.